Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Amen. Good morning, church. Amen. Again, the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And the word of God reads, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all of the chief priests and scribes of people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Thank God for the reading and hearing of his word. Thank you, Nathan. Um, Can I confess something this morning before we get going? Um, Because I want to be real with you about where I am, and our theme is joy this morning. And I want to confess that I have not been feeling joy for the past few days. I've just been down, been depressed for whatever reason, not interested in much, not able to feel joy, not able to feel happiness too much. Um, And it's an inconvenient truth that we live in a broken world where that's the reality of life. There are seasons and times we we go and we just don't feel it. And so I'm going to ask for your prayer first, and I'm going to pray over the word and and over sharing this um, today before we continue on. So would you pray with me? Good morning, Lord. Jesus, we've, we've come to you multiple times this morning, and God, I pray that, that you would always put a desire within our hearts to pray, to come before you, to come in quiet and listen, and to come bringing our needs, and that, Lord, we would be a people, in this church at least, who are not afraid to lay bare everything that we are before you and to never try to hide anything about our lives from you and never try to hide from each other. 
but that this community would be a people who are vulnerable before you and can admit and open up and say, God, I'm struggling right now. Can admit before one another when we're struggling, when things are difficult, when we don't feel the happiness and the joy, when we don't feel the smile that's on our face. And God, this morning I confess I haven't felt that way. I'm sure there are many others in this room who have been in the same place, who are in the same place right now, who nevertheless are here out of faithfulness to you, Jesus, because we recognize that you are our king and you are our Lord and you are our master and you are our good brother and you are the one who has saved us and you are the one we owe our allegiance to no matter what our feelings say at the moment. And King Jesus, as you are king over every circumstance of our life and every emotion we feel and even when we don't feel anything at all, we continue to come to you and to bow before you and worship you and give you glory because you're worth it. And so, God, this morning, as we investigate your word, as we dig into the scriptures today, I pray that your truth would come forward and you would lead us into relationship with Jesus in spite of whatever else may be going on. And you would remind us, Jesus, that you are truly king over everything. And you are a good and faithful and just king. And it's in your name we pray. And it's to you that we submit all that we are. Amen. Um, we all have to deal with inconvenient truths. I just shared one. <laughs> the inconvenient truth that this world is broken. I don't, I don't know anybody in the world who would be like, yeah, everything is exactly as it should be. If you do know anybody who feels that way, they're deluded. It doesn't take much looking around to see that the world is not as it should be. We've messed it up, people. And there's a further inconvenient truth to that, and that is when I look in the mirror, I'm seeing the principal actor, the one who has messed things up. When I look in the world, when I look in the mirror and I really evaluate who I am and what I've done and how I have lived, I cannot avoid the fact that everything I am tempted to judge out there exists right here in me. I have broken relationships. I have hurt people. I have been wrong. I have been selfish. I have been judgmental. I have been all of those things that I am tempted to judge other people for. That's the inconvenient truth of humanity. And we have to be honest with ourselves when we come to this place and say, I, I live with that inconvenient truth. But being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus means I hold to another truth that is inconvenient for the rest of the world. It means that I hold to the truth that Jesus is king over all things. I hold to the truth that Jesus has washed me clean of all those things I see in the mirror that contribute to the brokenness of the world. That God has broken into this world. God has come into this dark place to bring us light and to lead us into places of wholeness and of healing and to make us righteous as Jesus is righteous, to cleanse us of those things within my heart that contribute to the brokenness of the world. That's the truth with a capital T. That's the bedrock. That's the foundation on which we build. 
That is everything that we build our lives around as followers of Jesus. That is core and essential. Nothing is as important as that truth. That Jesus has come to be our king, to lead us, to be our savior, to cleanse us, to be our brother, to embrace us, to be our master and our Lord who doesn't burden us with a list of rules and laws, but frees us to become like Jesus. This is the truth of the world, and we hold that intention with the inconvenient truth that our world is also broken. And today we meet two groups of people who are wrestling with this new inconvenient truth of Jesus. We meet two groups of people And their reactions to this inconvenient truth should surprise us. First, we meet this group of wise men. Every time we talk about this, my daughter Maggie says, why they got to be men? Can't there be any women in there too? (laughs) Maggie, this is an inconvenience of history, right? It was was men, right? Um, We meet this caravan of people. Now, what you got to remember is in the ancient world, nobody traveled alone anywhere, right? And in a communal culture, people just weren't alone very often anyway. We live in a very individualistic world where, like, we travel by ourselves. Nobody was, like, getting in their car and driving with only one other person, right? You traveled a long way. You traveled with a caravan. First, because you've got to have resources and stuff. you got to have food and clothes and all the things that you need for a long journey. So you don't travel alone. So these aren't just three dudes walking across the desert or riding camels across the desert like you'll see in all the movies and everything, right? This is like a whole big crew of people. We don't even know that there were three wise men. There might have been 20 wise men. All we know is that they brought three gifts, right? So these wise men, these people are coming from the east. So they're coming to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the capital of Judea, Judea being a small country in the Roman Empire right on the Mediterranean Sea. And so these guys are coming from somewhere in the east, probably the land of Babylon, or what's called Babylonia at this point. It's no longer like the empire of Babylon, but it's, it's the area of Iran, of Persia. Right? And so these men are coming from the east to Jerusalem because they've seen a sign in the stars. These are astrologers. Astrology was very common at the time among most people. Cultures and people groups in the world, astrology was very common. Groups of people would look to the stars to read the skies, to tell what was happening in the world, and they would read them as portents of what was coming. Now, these dudes from Babylonia, these astrologers from Babylonia, they know Jewish people. You see, 600 years before Jesus comes along, the Jewish people had been taken out of Judea into captivity in Babylon. Seventy-so years after that, Persia comes along, wipes out Babylon, tells the Jews, hey, you can go home, and a lot of them do, but a lot don't. A lot of them stay in Persia. They stay in the capital city of Susa. They stay in the areas around it. So these are the Jews of what we call the diaspora. They're spread out outside of Judea. And so these astrologers, they know some Jewish people because there are big Jewish communities outside of Judea. We tend to think of Jews only as living in this one little place at the time. But because of the exile, they had been living all over the Roman Empire and even back into the east. 
So these, these astrologers have heard from their Jewish neighbors and from the Jew, Jewish people they know about the coming king. There's, there's going to be a redeemer. There's going to be a king coming. Especially because for these Jews who don't live in Judea, they are longing for a free Jerusalem. They're longing for a free country to go back to, but right now Rome rules over Judea. The empire of Rome rules over the nation that's supposed to be their own. So the Jews living outside of Judea in the diaspora, they long for a free Judea again, just like the Jews back home. They long for a free Jerusalem. And so they know that a deliverer is coming, a Messiah is coming. Someone is coming to drive out the empire and give a, bring Judea back to freedom again. And so these astrologers who know some Jewish people we got to imagine they know some of this stuff. Maybe not all of it, maybe not as deeply as the Jewish people do, but they've heard these things, right? They're familiar with Jewish communities. So as they're looking at the stars, they see one star in particular light up the night sky, and it happens to be in the west. They're in the east, they're looking west, and they see this star, and they know that's the, that's the way to Judea. And having heard these stories from their Jewish community, having heard these stories from their Jewish neighbors, they are looking for this. And they say, the, the king has been born. The deliverer y'all are waiting for, he's, he's come. And so it's time for us to go. So they set out toward Jerusalem. They get together this big group of people, this big convoy that they need to get from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And naturally they're going to Jerusalem because where would you go if a new king was born? Right? You go to the capital. You go right to the king. If a new king is born, you're assuming it's the son of the king. So that's what they do. They head out. Now, here's, a, here's one thing you've got to understand, too. God hates astrology. Hates it. It's, it's classed with divination and fortune-telling in the Old Testament. And there are two particular verses in Leviticus 19.6 and in Exodus or De- Deuteronomy 17-something, 18-something, um, that divination and fortune-telling are evil. The people of God are not supposed to engage in divination and fortune-telling. That includes astrology. That includes looking to the stars to read your future. God hates astrology. And he still does, by the way. Always has, always will. Horoscopes are worthless. Stop reading them. But these astrologers from the east see this star come up. You know why God put that star in the sky? It wasn't like some just natural event that, that, wasn't, that couldn't be avoided. It wasn't some, some thing that just happened. God put that star in the sky for these astrologers. God has commanded his people not to engage in this. God hates it because it's not a trust in him. It's a, it's a kind of magical practice that looks to nature to be their God. And yet, for the sake of these astrologers who God knows are going to be looking at the sky, God puts a special star in place. If that ain't a lesson, that God knows where you are and sees where you are at any given moment and will use whatever it takes to lead you to his son, then there ain't one. Just because God has commanded his people not to do it doesn't mean he won't use it to lead others to himself when it's necessary. God hates astrology. 
But God put a star in the sky so that these pagan astrologers from Babylonia would see it and know God's king had come and would come to Jerusalem. And so these men with their convoy, their caravan, set out to Jerusalem and they get to Jerusalem and they go straight to the king. Naturally so, right? They're an envoy from another nation. The king has to welcome them. The law dictates it. Hospitality demands it. The king has to welcome these people into his court. And so King Herod the Great opens up his doors and lets these magi in, these pagan astrologers in, and they come asking, where is the king of the Jews to be born? And Herod's like, I don't know. Let me, let me get my guru, let me get my scholars over here to tell me, because I don't know, this is, this is news to me. And so he gathers his group of scribes and, Pharisee, of, of scribes and scholars who, who know the scriptures inside and out. You see, Herod isn't a proper Jew, and he's not particularly observant, so he doesn't really know this stuff. He's got to call the scholars in. The scholars come in and they let him know, hey, kid's going to be born in Bethlehem, like five miles down the road from here. And Herod's like, oh, this is interesting, okay. So he sends the astrologers out. He says, go. It's going to be in Bethlehem Ephrathah. They have to name, they have to name it separately, Bethlehem of Judea or Bethlehem Ephrathah, because there's another Bethlehem that's like many, many miles to the north. And so they got to name the right one. So he says, go to Bethlehem in Judea. It's like five miles south of here, a couple hours walk. You can make it. When you get there, um, verify that this has happened, and then come tell me so I can go worship him. And so the astrologers do that. They take that couple-hour journey south from Jerusalem down the hill, down into Bethlehem, little, little shepherding town where the sheep for the temple would be raised up. And they go, and they find it exactly as they hoped. They're in a manger. Well, he's not in a manger anymore. That's the shepherds. Jesus is a little bit older. He's with his family, right? There in this little house in Bethlehem, they find the child Jesus with his family. And they bow down. They worship him. And they give him gifts fitting for a king because he's the king who's come. And they pay him honor, and they pay him homage. And then they go back home to tell everybody back home that the king has come. That the deliverer of the Jewish people has come. These pagan astrologers who owe no allegiance to Jesus... These pagan astrologers who owe no allegiance to a Jewish king, these pagan astrologers have nothing to do with this king who has been born. Seek him out because they're truth seekers. They're looking for the truth. And here's the fact. If you're really looking for truth, you'll find it. If you're honestly seeking truth and not looking for your own agenda and not trying to verify what you already believe, if you are truly looking for truth, it is there to be found. And the God of all truth will lead you to it. There's this 
uh, episode in The Last Battle. This is the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's my favorite, favorite story from the Chronicles of Narnia. There's this guy named Emeth. Emeth is the Hebrew word for truth. This is important as you understand this. So uh, I can't go into too much detail because I could be here forever talking about this story. But basically what you got is you got the land of Narnia. You've all heard of Narnia, right? The place that the kids from London get to go and be kings and queens. And in Narnia, there's a, a great ruler over everybody else. His name is Aslan. He is the Christ figure. At one point in the stories, Aslan tells the Pevensey kids, you'll know me by another name in your world. And so Aslan rules over Narnia. But Narnia is just one country in this world. There's another country to the south of Narnia called Kalerman. And the Kalermean people worship a god called Tash. Tash is scary and ugly. He's got the head of a bird and the body of a man. And he's like, they, like make, uh, they make sacrifices to Tash of people, right? Tash is an evil, evil god. But the Kalermean people worship Tash. And in this story in the last battle, a bunch of Kalermeans have come into Narnia. One of the Narnians has betrayed his country. He's led in a whole bunch of Kalermine soldiers. And the idea is that Kalermine is now going to take over Narnia. And one of these Kalermine soldiers goes into a stable one night. You don't need to know much about the stable except that it's there. And people think that when they go into the stable, they're going to meet their god, either Tash or Aslan. And so this Kalermine soldier, wanting to meet his god Tash, who he's been dedicated to his entire life, volunteers to go into this stable where he believes Tash is. And he gets into the stable, and it's not at all what he imagines. And here's how C.S. Lewis describes it. This is a long portion of, of the book, but, but bear with me. Right? This is the Kalermine soldier named Emeth talking about what happened to him once he got into this stable. It turns out that once he walks in, the land is beautiful, and the sun is shining, and the air is clean and bright. And he finds himself in heaven. And he thinks this is Tash's place. He thinks this is Tash's land. So I went over much grass and many flowers and among all kinds of wholesome and delectable trees till, lo, in a narrow place between two rocks, there came to meet me a great lion. The speed of him was like the ostrich and his size was an elephant's. His hair was like pure gold and the brightness of his eyes like gold that is liquid in the furnace. He was more terrible than the flaming mountain of Lagur, and in beauty he surpassed all that is in the world, even as the rose in bloom surpasses the dust of the desert. Then I fell at his feet and thought, surely this is the hour of death, for the lion who is worthy of all honor will know that I have served Tash all my days and not him. Nevertheless, it is better to see the lion and die than to be Tizrak, leader of the world, and live and not to have seen him. But the glorious one bent down his golden head and touched my forehead with his tongue and said, Son, thou art welcome. But I said, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but the servant of Tash. He answered, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash I account as service done to me. Then by reasons of my great desire for wisdom and understanding, I overcame my fear and questioned the glorious one and said, Lord, is it then true, as the ape said, that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled so that the earth shook, but his wrath was not against me and said, it is false. Not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. 
I take to me the services which thou hast done to him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is, not, it is by me that he is truly sworn, though he know it not, and it is I who reward him. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. Dost thou understand, child? I said, Lord, thou knowest not how much I understand. But I said also, for the truth constrained me, yet I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not have sought so long and so truly. For all find what they truly seek. Emeth had been seeking truth. And in his time and place and in his world, truth went by the name of Tash. But Aslan was wooing him all the time. In their time and place, these astrologers had been knowing truth by the stars. And so God used their truth what they understood of the world, to lead them to himself. All who truly seek, who seek the real truth, will find it. There's a great line that comes out of the Protestant Reformation that all truth is God's truth. And those who truly seek for the real truth will be led ultimately to Christ because he is the truth, the only truth that ultimately matters. And so these astrologers come and they bow before the truth as God has led them to it. But there's another character here. There's King Herod, that king that these astrologers had come to visit. And we read that when Herod heard the news that the king had been born, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. These are the people who should have more than anybody else longed for this coming king. They should have longed for the deliverance that the king would bring. They should have longed to look upon the king of the Jews who would lead them to freedom. They should have gone to worship him, but instead we read that Herod wanted to kill this king. That secretly when he told the astrologers, come back and tell me so I can worship him, what he really wanted to do was to kill Jesus, to eliminate any opposition, any competition for his throne. And we read, it wasn't just Herod. It was all of Jerusalem. It was all the leadership of the nation. Why? Why were they so opposed? They were opposed to Jesus because the status quo is just more comfortable. Hard as things may be, it's easier to live in a world we know than a world we don't. Hard as it may be, it's easier to go with the flow of what we've lived in and what we've breathed and the world that we've been a part of than it is to live in a world that we don't understand. And this king who's come, this king who's in that poor home in Bethlehem, who knows what he's going to do? I mean, living under Rome isn't great, but we know it. We understand it. For us who follow Jesus, there's so many times in our lives that living in our sin, living in the world we know, operating in the world as we're comfortable is so much easier than following Jesus. 
Because just like for Herod in Jerusalem, Jesus is an inconvenient truth for us. He calls us to something higher and better and disruptive. Jesus calls us to a life that is nothing like we would have imagined apart from him. He disrupts our world and he is an inconvenient truth for those of us who like to hold on to our comfort and to the status quo. And the danger for us is that we come to Jesus and we only bring him part of ourselves. We come to Jesus and we only lay before him these particular parts, the spiritual side of us. You can have my Sunday morning from this time to this time and you can have maybe another day of the week and you can have maybe a little bit of my life, but don't touch these things because I'm comfortable here. Don't touch the way I use my money, Jesus. Don't touch the way I spend my time outside of church services. Don't touch the way that you've called me to love my enemies. Don't touch my judgments of others. Don't touch my way of life. You can have this corner of me so that I can get to heaven, but Jesus, don't you dare touch the rest of it. That's the attitude of Herod and of Jerusalem. Don't mess with our comfortable world. I can't go bow before this king because it will mean disruption to everything that I know. But Jesus comes as king, as lord, as master. Jesus won't have it any other way. We bow to him as king with everything submitted to him, or we don't bow at all. Herod and Jerusalem were disturbed because Jesus would mean a change to their lives and their world because he would bring disruption. And they could not imagine that what this king would do would be better than what they already had. So often we're limited by our imaginations because we can't imagine a world better than what we already have. It may not be perfect, but it's good enough for me. And I can't imagine what it would be if Jesus disrupted that, if he changed it. And so we choose the status quo. We choose to live in the ways that we've understood. We choose to hold on to our sin and our rebellion because it gives us a modicum of control and of comfort. And I'm comfortable when I'm in control. And if I give control to Jesus, I don't know what he's going to do with it. And so we hold on. We hoard our wealth. We keep our ambitions. And we manage our lives and we go to church. And then we go right back to our other lives. And we live in two worlds. We don't hold these truths in tension with each other. We hold them separate. We, we compartmentalize our lives into the spiritual world that Jesus gets and the real world in which I live, where I have to make compromises. And I can't really fully follow Jesus because of the compromises I have to make or because of the comfort that I want to hold on to or because of the control that I can't give over. This is the sin of Herod. This is the sin of Jerusalem. And this is what crucifies Jesus in our hearts. It's what crucifies Jesus all the time as we choose our sin over him as our king. 
But we read that the pagan astrologers, these magi, they came and with great joy laid down their gifts before Jesus. With great joy came and worshipped the king. They rejoiced that he had come. It would mean all kinds of disruption for the world. But when they found truth, they rejoiced in it. When we come to the truth, the only proper response is rejoicing with it. When we finally find the truth that our hearts have been longing for, when we finally come to the place where we know the truth that God has been leading us to, the only proper response is to rejoice. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that great love chapter that we read at weddings. It's way harder. <laughs> it's way more challenging than we want to give it credit for. In 1 Corinthians 13, 6, Paul says, Love does not delight in injustice or unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Regardless of its inconvenience, regardless of its challenge to us, regardless of what it calls for us or from us, love rejoices with the truth. And when we love Jesus, we rejoice in Him. We root our joy in Him. I told you earlier, I wasn't feeling joyful. I'm still not necessarily feeling it right now. But whether I feel it or not, my joy is in the truth that Jesus is the King and that Jesus is bringing about a better world than I could possibly imagine. And so when Jesus calls me to lay down those parts of me that I want to withhold from Him, when He calls me to lay down the things that bring me comfort and give me control and help me to feel good about the world that I inhabit and the world that I'm in, when He calls me to lay those things down in submission to Him, it is my joy to do so, regardless of how inconvenient it is or challenging it may be. It is my joy to come because I know that my king has a better world in mind than I can possibly imagine, and he has a better future for me than I could possibly hope for. And why would I muddy around in this world in ways that make me comfortable for now? Why would I mess around and play around in the world as it is when I know that Jesus has a dream of the world that is far beyond anything I could imagine? C.S. Lewis again says, this is what we do. We're content to play with mud pies in the backyard when God is offering us a holiday at sea. We're content in our world, and Jesus has come as king to say, I'm giving you something so much better if only you'll bow to me. If only you'll give me control. If only you'll hand over your sin to me. Seek the truth while he may be found, and God will bless you for it. But there's a problem with this. See, the, the, the Magi come and they rejoice at Jesus. And we see the, the shepherds come and they rejoice when they meet the king. And, and others come and, and they see Jesus, the, the Anna at the temple and Simon at the temple, these old saints who are worshipers of God who rejoice at the coming of Jesus. But there's a problem. There's a problem in the next chapter, in the next verses. We read that Herod is going to try and kill Jesus, so the family has to flee to Egypt. And then we read one of the most tragic episodes in all of the Bible. 
where Herod sends his men out and says, I want you to go out and kill every kid under two in this area just so that we can be sure we got him. The sin of Herod, the rejection of the new king, leads to immeasurable suffering for some families. Herod holding on to his control, holding on to the world, the status quo that he loves because he's the king, because he's the master, leads to incalculable suffering for some of these families. And we might be right, we would be right, to look at this episode and say, wait a minute, how does this square with the joy of the season? How does this square with the joy of Jesus? How in the world do we account for the rejoicing of the Magi, these pagans who don't deserve God's love? How do we square their rejoicing with the suffering of God's people? How do we hold these two things together? And I'm sad to say I don't have an answer. Except that oftentimes at this time of the year, we in the church, we pay lip service to light coming into darkness. It's like bad Christian movies. Bad Christian movies. You ever watched a bad Christian movie? You ever watched a good Christian movie? I haven't seen many. Sorry. If you love Christian movies, I'm really sorry. There are a lot of people who just really love these things. Here's the, here's the problem I have with Christian movies. Christian movies, the, the, the badness of the world that they portray, I don't recognize. It's such a sanitized view of the world. Well, that guy said, darn it. You know? Like, or like the struggles that people deal with so often, they're, they're not real world struggles. They portray evil in this sanitized way. The Bible is nothing like a bad Christian movie. It presents us the world as it is. In all of its real darkness. In all of its misery. And the gospel writer here, Matthew, it would have been easy for him to leave this bit out. Yeah, he's trying to draw a connection to Moses, and there's all kinds of stuff we could dig into here. But in reality, Matthew could have been like, I don't need to include that. This is a story of joy. This is what we do. We sanitize our Christmas. We sanitize our Christian world, and we pretend that the darkness isn't really that dark. But here's the problem. If we pretend like the darkness isn't really that dark, then the light isn't really that bright. If we pretend that sin isn't really that bad, then our Savior is teeny. Our king is small, and his power and his goodness are diminished. But with this unsanitized portrayal of the true darkness of the world, what Matthew is pointing to here is not, not the irreconcilable struggle between the joy of the coming king and the darkness and the suffering of God's people. That's a question that the Bible doesn't often answer except to say that God is good. And this is what Jesus has come to deal with. This mess, this brokenness, this darkness. Let's not sanitize the situation of the world. Let's not sanitize the sin that lives in our hearts. Let's not brighten the darkness so that it doesn't take much to overcome it. Let's be real about how broken this world is. Let's be real about what Jesus came to deal with. Let's be very honest and clear about all of the stuff that goes on in my heart and all of the stuff that I see in the world and the great power of our good God to overcome it. 
Let's not lessen God's graciousness and his mercy and his goodness and, yes, his justice by presenting a sanitized view of the world. When God sees suffering in the world, his response is not to justify it. It's not to wipe it away. It's not to sanitize it. It's not to say, well, they were misunderstood. It's to say, no, I am coming in righteousness and justice and goodness to deal with it once and for all. That's the promise of Advent. That our good, righteous, just God has come to a broken, unrighteous, unjust world and says, I am bringing all of my goodness and power to bear on the evil around you. And so God's response to human suffering is to wrap his arms around us, say, I love you and I understand and I feel your pain and I am coming to do something about it. In the meantime, in the meantime, stay true to me. Stay true to Jesus. We will face suffering. We will face difficulty in the world. And the only way to not let it rob us of our joy is to remember that our good King Jesus has come once to bring peace and to bring salvation for those of us who are far from him and that he is coming again to make an end of sin and evil once and for all to bring about his just kingdom forever and we look to that day we root our hope and we root our peace and we root our joy in the coming king jesus who will make all things right and in the meantime we don't sanitize the darkness we don't sanitize the sin. Because in doing so, we diminish the goodness and power of our God. We walk into a world of people who are suffering, wrap our arms around them, and point them to the only true and lasting hope and joy there is, and that is in Jesus Christ, our God. Let's turn to Him, seek His truth above all things, and root our identities, and our joy in him and him alone. Let's pray. God, thank you for calling us to yourself. And thank you that in a dark world, we can look to your light. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to do something about the brokenness and distress of our world. Thank you that when, even when we don't feel it, Lord, even when we're overwhelmed by the struggle, Lord, even when anxiety stands opposed to us, even when the depression comes, even when the struggles hit, even in the darkness, Lord, we can look to your light. We can root our joy in you and our hope and our peace in you, our good and true king who will one day come to bring your kingdom and make all things right. In the meantime, let us be agents of that kingdom. Let us walk hand in hand in a dark world carrying your light. Let us walk hand in hand in an unjust world bringing your justice. And let us walk hand in hand into a chaotic world and bring your peace and seek the shalom that only you can bring. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org. 